Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, December the 30th, 2021. The show will be rebroadcast on Monday, January 3rd, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 89th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show features our special guest, Basir Vita. He is from Afghanistan, the last 18 years of his life living in Afghanistan. He was able to get out of Afghanistan under very challenging circumstances on September 5th, just days after the last U.S. evacuation plane left Kabul. Made it to Pakistan for a month and then flew into Canada, where we'll be talking with him during this show. He got to Canada in uh, October Uh, 5th of this year, 15th of this year or so, somewhere in that area. So stay tuned for a really important discussion and historical education about Afghanistan and U.S. foreign policy influences over the last 40 years. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is the capital city of Austin, Texas, and this is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and I will be introducing our guest more formally in just a second, Basir Vita from Afghanistan, now living in Canada. I wanted to start the show off by switching gears from the last couple of weeks, the really important unfolding events in the Russian-Ukraine-U.S. interactions there. Got some real positive feedback from people that found those shows to be very interesting. Today, we're shifting gears to what we've covered in the past quite a bit, but currently is really important. And this one article actually will be a good segue into our topic today regarding Afghanistan. It's an article that was authored by Yulia Tamazan. It's an NBC News report of December 8th, 2021. The article indicates that the British government left the UK nationals and Afghan allies at the mercy of the Taliban during the chaotic exit from Afghanistan, which of course was last August, and in one case at least prioritized evacuation of animals over people, a whistleblower has alleged. Raphael Marshall, he's a former employee of the UK Foreign Service, and said in written evidence to the Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee that the way the UK prioritized evacuations was, quote, arbitrary and dysfunctional, end quote. Marshall also said the Foreign Office 
quote, received instruction from Prime Minister Boris Johnson to use considerable capacity, quote, unquote, to help evacuate animals from this charity, Nowzad, that's run by a former British Royal Marine, Paul Farthing. He goes by Penn. There were also severe delays in processing emails from people requesting help with thousands left unread in any given moment at the peak of the withdrawal, which was between August 21st and August 25th of this year. This is what Marshall said in evidence published ahead of this story. Uh, He estimated between 75,000 and 150,000 people applied to be evacuated, but fewer than 5% received assistance. It is clear that some of those left behind have since been murdered by the Taliban, he wrote. In one of the most striking allegations, Marshall said the government transported Nauzad's animals that were not at risk of harm at the direct expense of evacuating British nationals and people at risk of imminent murder, including interpreters who had served with the British Army. Marshall alleged that with limited number of British soldiers on the ground at Kabul airport to deal with evacuees, some were tasked with escorting Nauzad's charities' animals but would have otherwise been deployed to support the evacuation of British nationals or Afghans prioritized for evacuation. There was a direct trade-off between transporting these animals and evacuating British nationals and Afghan evacuees, including Afghans who had served with the British soldiers, he said. The UK government and Nauzad representative denied these charges of the UK government's prioritizing the evacuation of these animals over humans, However, on its website, Nauzad does indicate that it does house nearly 150 dogs and over 40 cats in its shelter in Kabul and ran a veterinary clinic staffed by a team of Afghan nationals that was also operating the country's first donkey sanctuary. So donkeys, dogs, and cats apparently have a greater value of life than human beings. The charity was one of several animal shelters that is run by foreigners that were scrambling to evacuate as the Taliban took over Kabul. The BBC reported in August that Farthing of this Nauzad group left the Afghan capital on a private charter flight with nearly 150 dogs and cats. In response to Marshall's allegations, this guy Steve Valdez-Simons S-Y-M-O-N-D-S, he's refugee and migrant rights director with Amnesty International UK, told NBC News in an email they are profoundly disturbed by the decision taken by the UK government to commit precious time, human resources, and space on flights to evacuating animals rather than people at the risk of persecution. That this was done tends to emphasize the concern that the government and those who encourage them in this regard some people as of less worth than others. This is a quote by, the, again, this guy Valdez Simons, the refugee and migrant rights director with Amnesty International. With that as kind of a backdrop, and I think this is just the inhumanity of war in general is a big concern of this show, but this is part of the notion that we are always coming to in this show, that there's no such thing as a lesser human being. And when you see people treated like that, obviously they're treated as lesser human beings. So really what lacks humanity is those that are part of those type of interests that would generate that type of outcome. But moving on, I wanted to give some background before introducing our guest to this crisis that has wound down in one way and winds up in other ways in Afghanistan. 
And if you remember, the Trump administration negotiated with the Taliban, and this is actually without the Afghan government, a U.S. withdrawal agreement from Afghanistan in February of 2020. Part of that agreement was the release of some 5,000 Taliban prisoners and a promise to be out by May 1st, 2021, on behalf of the United States forces there. On September 3rd of 2020, Afghanistan had released the final 400 Taliban prisoners as required under the, the U.S.-Taliban agreement. They'd begun releasing them quite some time earlier at about 100 per week, and they met the obligation of the last 400, as we said, in September of 2020. By January 15th of 2021, the United States had reduced their forces from about 13,000 down to 2,500 forces. That's the lowest since 2001. And that was followed by a delay by President Biden when he delayed the May 1st withdrawal date that he inherited. But ultimately, his administration pushed ahead with a plan to withdraw by August 31st, which is what occurred as the United States completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan on August 30th of this year. And one of the people that was interviewed in this particular article, it's called a near press blackout in Afghanistan is Catherine Lutz, and she's a co-founder of the Cost of War Project. And the whole issue that's so disconcerting to, to me and others, and she says it very well, is we still don't and have not done an accounting of all the losses and all the fraud and abuse in Afghanistan. We still haven't done any of that, according to her. The, the conflict itself in the same piece will cost taxpayers more than $2 trillion, including veteran care and interest on war borrowing, according to this cost of war project. This is at Brown University. They also estimate that more than 170,000 people died in the conflict, counting Afghan forces, Taliban fighters, and contractors. And that figure includes 2,400 U.S. troops and 47,000 Afghan citizens who died in a project that failed at its most basic goal of defeating the Taliban. As we move forward in this discussion, they talk about the, the press blackout, and this is the new normal, I would suggest, since the Vietnam War. Uh, it used to be you would see these body bags being loaded on, but it created such angst in the American public that the cost of war would be made available to everyone that this has been replaced by news blackouts since. I mean, you saw it in the Iraq War as well, the Gulf War, and particularly in the Afghan War. And the question is, why is that, if not mainly to keep United States citizens from seeing the cost of war, as well as the beneficiaries of war, which we'll discuss in a little bit. But the United States rushed to move its troops from Afghanistan this summer. The Pentagon imposed a de facto press blackout on their departure the military ignored requests for embeds, press embeds, denied pleas for e even perfunctory interviews with, with troops, and generally worked to obstruct the public's view of the United States pulling up stakes. The uh, journalists submitted letters of appeal and protest, but they had no effect. And this is being reported by Megan Stack in an article she did by The New Yorker, a near press blackout in Afghanistan back on August 4th, 2021. The journalists submitted letters of appeal and protest, but they had no effect. One editor, the Times editor, Dean Bequette, intervened, pressing the Pentagon to allow journalists access to the troops and requesting a meeting with Miller to make his case. But the general ignored those requests. A woman, Martha Radatz, the longtime ABC military reporter with a track record of Pentagon exclusives, got access to the troops. Others did not. So this is kind of what we expect that some people, I mean, if you remember Judith Miller of the New York Times, 
Uh, she had all the access that the U.S. government could allow her in order to confabulate and misrepresent the lies that took us to Iraq. But independent journalists certainly don't have that type of access. Then moving on, in this same piece, they interview Steve Warren. He's a longtime Pentagon spokesman who got pushed out of his job in the Trump administration. But he indicated, quote, one of the guiding principles is to keep the American people on our side at all costs, end quote, he told the author. Quote, controlling the imagery, controlling the message, controlling the sentiment, always geared toward that singular goal. Don't let the American people think we failed. Don't let them think that no matter what. And if you're not familiar with it, we've covered it on this show, and it's really worth a read, but it's the Afghan Papers. It's a secret history of the war by the Washington Post back in December 9th, 2019. It was written by Craig Whitlock. It was called A Secret History of the War, A War with the Truth. And essentially, these Afghan papers were much like the Pentagon Papers of Daniel Ellsberg and that were made available to the U.S. public, which documented a consistent and persistent lying and or withholding of information that would have revealed that the United States government was lying to us about the winnability of the Vietnam War. It was essentially unwinnable, and our government knew it, but persisted and resulted in tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers dying and a total cost in excess of a million Vietnamese deaths. But with the Afghan papers, again, they were only made public and published in December of 2019, just a couple of years ago, that they only uh, were made available some 18 years into the war conflict. And what was revealed was that, quote, the documents were generated by a federal project examining the root failures of the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. They include more than 2,000 pages of previously unpublished notes of interviews with people who played a direct role in the war. They included generals. They included diplomats, they included aid workers, they included Afghan officials, end quote. At the end of the day, quote, the U.S. tried to shield their identities and conceal nearly all their remarks. After a three-year legal battle, though, the Washington Post won release of the documents under the Freedom of Information Act. Just bear with me. I mean, this is really important understanding moving forward and looking backwards at the same time. But, quote, the documents also contradict a long chorus of public statements from U.S. presidents, military commanders, and diplomats who assured Americans year after year that they were making progress in Afghanistan and that the war was worth fighting, end quote. A three-star general, Douglas Lute, L-U-T-E, he served as the White House Afghan war czar during the Bush and Obama administrations, told government interviewers back in 2015, quote, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We did not know what we were doing, end quote. What were we doing? Uh, he added, we didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking, end quote. Anyhow, meanwhile, the report documents this persistent lying and misleading the, of the U.S. public, and the U.S. officials constantly said they were making progress. They were not, and they knew it, all according to this exclusive Washington Post investigation, these Afghan papers report. Common quotes within the report in support of this deceitful intent. They're everywhere. They abound, such as, quote, making rosy pronouncements that they knew to be false, end quote, hiding unmistakable evidence the war had become unwinnable, end quote. The author writes, quote, the documents also contradict a long course of public statements, as we mentioned, by former U.S. presidents, military commanders, and diplomats who assured America year after year that they were making progress and that the war was worth fighting. 
A close examination, if we looked at Syria objectively, which we tried to do on this show, shows that we've been lied to by both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Kerry, in his 2013 Senate testimony, he shared at least a half dozen or so misrepresentations to the U.S. public imploring us to move forward towards war with airstrikes in Syria. Amongst those false uh, representations was his false certainty that Assad was responsible for the August 21st, 2013 Al-Ghulta chemical attacks. As we've mentioned, and as we suspected long before we mentioned, rootclaim.org with a 96% certainty, not a total certainty, has indicated the evidence suggests that it was the Al-Qaeda supporters of the fighters that are part of the U.S. allies that were fighting Assad that were responsible for that attack. Anyhow, back to Afghanistan, as long as the U.S. public relies on this mainstream media and U.S. government rationalizations for their views, it just seems pretty obvious that we will continue to enable these unjust wars and conflicts that have literally killed millions. Since 2001, more than 775,000 U.S. troops have been deployed to Afghanistan, many repeatedly. Of those, some 2,300 have died. There were over 20,000 wounded in action. This is according to Defense Department figures back in 2019. And since 2001, the Defense Department, State Department, and U.S. Agency for International Development have spent approximately $934 billion, somewhere between that and $978 billion. This is according to an inflation-adjusted estimate calculated by Netta Crawford, a political science professor and co-director of the Cost of Wars Project at Brown University that we alluded to earlier. These figures do not include money spent by other agencies such as the CIA and the Department of Veteran Affairs, which is responsible for the medical care for wounded veterans. And just to mention a couple of other items, ordinary Americans tended to forget about Afghanistan, which received measurably less oversight from Congress than the Vietnam War did, but its death toll is in the many tens of thousands. And because the U.S. borrowed most of the money to pay for it, generations of Americans will be burdened by the cost of paying it off. And this is, of course, referring to the cost of Afghan war. This is from a piece by Ellen Nickmeyer from the AP back in August of this year. She goes on, here's a look at the U.S.-led war in Afghanistan by the numbers as the Taliban in a lightning offensive took over much of the country before the United States' August 31st deadline for ending its combat role as the United States sped up its American and Afghan evacuations. Much of the data she attributes to this woman, Linda Bilmis, of Harvard University's Kennedy School and from the Brown University Cost of War Project. They include that American service members killed in Afghanistan through April 2nd was uh, 2,448, which was less than the total number of contractors killed. We've mentioned this before, that there's 3,846 U.S. contractors killed in Afghanistan. The Afghan and National Military and Police, 66,000 of them died. Other allied service members, including NATO member nations, 1,144 deaths. When it comes to the Afghan civilians, 47,245 died. Taliban and other opposition fighters totaled 51,191 deaths. Aid workers, 444. Journalists, 72 deaths. The date that Congress authorized U.S. forces to go after culprits in the September 11, 2001 attack was September 18th. 2001. The article goes on to say the number of times the U.S. lawmakers have voted to declare war in Afghanistan, 
Bellman estimates the United States is committed to pay in health care, disability, burial, and other costs for roughly 4 million Afghanistan and Iraq veterans is more than $2 trillion. So basically, Craig Whitlock's article indicated that Washington wasted enormous amounts of money trying to remake Afghanistan into a modern nation. The interviews also highlighted the U.S. government botched attempts to curtail runaway corruption, build a competent Afghan army and police force, and put a dent in Afghanistan's thriving opium trade, end quote. To conclude this introduction, many companies have benefited. For some, it's been profitable. And this is the point. This is an unwinnable war. If we knew it for the whole time, why were we there? Well, maybe it's because somebody is making money. And this article documents it's the profiteering by some. In this article, the war in Afghanistan might not be effective, but it is for some. It's profitable by Catherine Lutz, and she's with the Public Standard magazine. She, she wrote this piece all the way back in 2017, and she was indicating that many companies have for years been cashing giant checks from the Pentagon's trillion-dollar war budget. There are still an extraordinary number of dollars to be made. A significant portion of the amount, almost $5 trillion, has been spent and obligated to be spent on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq has gone to military contractors whose workers currently outnumber soldiers in Afghanistan three to one. And then finally, she highlights that Lockheed Martin, DynCorp, Black and Veatch Academy, formerly Blackwater, and the oil companies that ship the fuel on which the army runs are just some of the most profitable. The contracts often come to jumbo-sized the Harris Corporation last year, for example, and again, reminding you that this is written back in 2017, so she's referring to 2016, they were awarded $1.7 billion contract to supply communications equipment to Afghan security forces. And then lastly, our friend Matt Ho, who's been on the show a number of times, reminds us that there is also a cost of war that's not well reported. Uh, but was reported by this article, High Suicide Rates Among United States Service Members and Veterans of the Post-9-11 Wars. And in that piece, it indicated the study found that four times as many active personnel and war veterans of post-9-11 conflicts have died of suicide than in combat, as an estimated 30,177 have died by suicide as compared with some 7,057 killed in post-9-11 war operations. The report notes that the increasing rates of suicide for both veterans and active duty personnel are outpacing those of the general population. This is an alarming shift as suicide rates among service members have historically been lower than suicide rates among the general public. So with that introduction of the costs of war in lives and in people and in Afghanis and in U.S. deal and in the cost of war in money as well, it's my great pleasure to introduce to bringing light into darkness, Basir Vita. Basir, welcome to bringing light into darkness. Thank you so much for inviting me, Pedro. Absolutely. Well, let me just share that Basir was born in Iran and spent his first 18 years there. He's also spent his second half of his life in mainly in Afghanistan, some 18 years there. And he's worked throughout the civil society and culture of Afghanistan with a number of different involvements with development projects, civil society organizations, international institutions, including the United States Agency for International Development, British Development Agency, and the Australian Development Agency. 
also has worked in studying with PhD candidates on media, religion, and anthropology, and also is familiar with some of the corruption that goes on and has gone on, not just by Afghanis, of course, but also by U.S. companies as he worked in an anti-corruption committee and just has done a lot of peace and nonviolent movement work and now is located in Canada and is very concerned about what has transpired in the past in Afghanistan and what, what the future looks like. With that being said, maybe we could start off by asking you to share a little bit about what is the most striking things that you think people should know about Afghanistan and the U.S. involvement as we sit here just a couple of months after the final U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Sure. Maybe providing you a broad picture of what the situation is like in Afghanistan would be better because they I am in a daily basis in close touch with my brothers, family, parents, relatives, friends, in daily basis. And I have, I'm working voluntarily with a, a few groups who are working the best to get Afghans out of uh, Afghanistan. So after the Taliban takeover in August, the U.S. froze nearly $10 billion in asset belonging to the Afghan Central Bank. The International Monetary Fund froze the distributions of $450 million, and the World Bank held back hundreds of millions in the Afghan Reconstruction Trust Fund. Meanwhile, Afghan teachers have gone without pay since June, and hospitals are closing. The Afghan people can be blamed for the oppressive policies of the Taliban. The best strategy could be for now, only for the sake of the people and their futures, and to survive them is to unfreeze the funds. Our private sector is almost non-functional anymore, as there is neither a stable food market nor a currency in circulation. The scale of the disaster is unthinkably large. According to the United Nations, 23 million Afghans face acute food insecurity, and 1 million children at the risk of dying from malnutrition. With Afghanistan having sunk into the worst humanitarian crisis, nobody was surprised when the United Nations requested $4.5 billion for urgent needs in 2022, the largest ever such appeal. Basir, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. We'll be right back with our special guest right after this message. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, and we'll be back in a flash. 